Welcome to Decoding Careers, a podcast to help software engineers transition into a leadership role. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Decoding Careers. I'm Sam Yates, your host, the software engineering recruiter. Now, we've probably got to about seven different episodes now, and the feedback's been been great. There's been a lot of engineers that have been contacting me in, in terms of the different perspectives, in terms of the engineering leaders, you know, how they've transitioned from an engineer to a leader, and some of the experiences and the stories that they've told have been been really good. So, been a bit of a success so far. But today, I'm I'm excited to announce that it took me a while to to get hold of him, but we've finally got Leo on the show to introduce Leo. So Leo's a multifaceted leader, is a software engineer, an author, speaker, mentor, and tech advocate. Now he's passionate about cultivating healthy engineering organizations. And he believes that culture is the key to success. So Leo loves exploring ideas with motivated individuals, delivering practical solutions on a large scale. So for those that you don't know, so Leo is currently serving as a director of engineering at Canva, which is a free-to-use online graphic design tool used for social media, presentations, videos, logos, and much more. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest for today's episode, Leo Borgs. Welcome, Leo. Thanks, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, brilliant. Like I said, it was uh, quite tough to get hold of you. I know you, you get multiple calls throughout the day. I think Ricky McAllister, actually, so big shout out to Ricky for the for the introduction here, for your time at, at Zip when you worked together. That's right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was um, really good to finally get in touch. But welcome to the show, and I think... I'm really excited about this one. Um, obviously, I can see that you're Director of Engineering at Canva at the moment, previously Director of Engineering at Zip, and also acting CTO during your time there as well, um, looking after the core mobile team and the shop and, and the rewards and the core product team as well. But yeah, look, starting from the beginning, take us back to when you wrote your first line of code. Wow, that is a quite a trip down memory lane. Um, I was probably around 12, 13 years old. That's when I got my first computer as a gift from my granddad. And I wanted to create text-based adventures. I don't know if you've ever played those in, on PC, but basically it's telling you a story. And from time to time, you ask, ask you a question and ask you to take an action. Do you want to go down this path, use this item, this other item? And depending on answer, it takes you to a different area of the game of this text-based adventure. And that was really my introduction to... I guess you could call it programming language. These were batch scripts on Windows, so really old school. Uh, not, not even Windows, sorry, on Microsoft DOS. And that was my introduction to conditionals. That's my first if statements and else and doing things differently and case statements. So that's how it all kind of started. And from there, I started getting into computer magazines to figure out what was going on in the world. Heard about this guy called Linus Torvalds, Finnish guy who created the Linux kernel. I read his story, it was very compelling. I'm like, you know, I'd like to do that one day. Uh, obviously, I never ended up doing that. Um, that was way beyond my capabilities at the time, but it really set me down the path to learn more about programming languages and uh, developing software applications. Yeah, nice, nice, interesting. What made you sort of go down that direction then? Was it someone in the family? Was it 
just an interest from reading? So it started with gaming, actually. Yeah. I got my first PC, and as probably every 12-year-old kid at a time, the one thing I wanted to do with it was play games. And I just got very interested and wanted to figure out how those were made. So I started getting into that and going into, through these magazines, figuring out the kind of software that I might need. At the time, I didn't have any cash on my own, so it was all trial and demo versions of these softwares. I eventually found out this environment called Dark Basic, which was for developing games based on the basic programming language. It no longer exists, uh, I don't think, but it allowed me to start developing some very simple level scenarios in 3D for gaming. That was super cool. And eventually I did develop my first full game, which was just a clone of Tetris. I wanted to do something from beginning to end. And Tetris is simple enough that you can hold all the rules in your head. So I ended up doing that. So how old was you then? Uh, no, the Tetris was much, much later. Yeah, so at a yeah. time, I was just doing more uh, simpler programs yeah, yeah. until I eventually I developed a program which was kind of a Trojan horse that I would send friends as a prank. Um, so basically, I would send them via email this executable file. They would open it and they say, ah, oh, nothing happened. And then I would remotely connect to their computers and turn things on and off. Um, and they, they kind of hated me for it, but I was having a lot of fun. And uh, I apologize to them now if they ever get to listen to this episode. But uh, uh, it's uh, just know that you helped me in my career. So <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Now, one topic I always like to speak about, because it comes up quite a lot, especially in terms of hiring. Did you go to university? And if you did, what did you study? And how do you think it helped your career? Yeah, cool. So... Probably worth mentioning that I'm originally from Brazil, so I did go to uni there. And at the time, I studied computer science. In Brazil, the curriculum was very much based off the engineering degrees that we had in the country, so very maths and, and physics heavy, with some of the computer science stuff tacked on top. I did not finish my degree, so I dropped out when I had maybe a year left. And you might think, well, it was so close, right? Why did you drop out? At the time, I did want the experience of living abroad. So I had an opportunity to go work for a company in Spain. And then I moved when I was 24, I believe. So that company called Mirai, they basically were developing booking engines for hotels. That's how they made the bulk of their revenue. And they also had a website called hotelsearch.com, which was basically a competitor to booking.com at the time in Europe. Obviously, booking.com is massive now. And hotelsearch.com doesn't really exist anymore. But that's how that happened and why I ended up dropping out. My idea was to go back and finish it, but I then never went back to Brazil. And I've been living abroad, obviously now in Australia, for the past 13 years and another two and a half years in Spain. Yeah, no, interesting. And the second part of your question, how did I think it helped me? So at the time, as I mentioned, I started coding when I was about 13. And uni, I was already pretty good at programming for a kid. So all of those subjects were, were very uh, simple to me. However, because the degree was so foundational, things like databases and networks, I didn't know a whole lot about that. I knew a little bit, but not, not too much. So that was crucial to giving me a solid foundation in computer science and developing systems. So it was very useful from that point of view. You can definitely get that knowledge in different ways, especially nowadays. But at the time, it, it definitely uh, set, set me apart. And the other side of it was just meeting people. So the, the networking aspect is phenomenal because that's how you develop, at university you develop your first professional network, really. That was really good for me. Also uh, worth mentioning, I did start working when I was 17, just before I got to uni. So I was doing uni at night at the time. 
Okay, so you was was you working working day uni at night? Then? That's right. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that's pretty intense. Would that be one of the reasons as well why you sort of? I know you wanted to move to Spain, but was it quite intense? No, no, the, it wasn't. I mean, it was intense, but you know, I was in my early twenties at that time. You know, you have the energy to do everything. I still found the time to go out with friends and go do sport and stuff like that. It's you don't sleep a lot when you're that age. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And in terms of well, obviously, I'm sure you've done quite a lot of hiring in your time. What would you say to engineers that haven't been to university? Obviously, there's a lot of fundamentals that you can you can get from from university. But have you worked with some great engineers that that haven't studied at university and just been as good? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of the engineers I've worked with haven't been to to university. One of the first engineers that I met right after moving to Australia uh, 13 years ago now is someone who also dropped out. And he's gone on to do amazing things, both as an engineer. And funnily enough, he's also now an, an engineering leader. In, he's been leading teams in first in Europe, after Australia, then US, which is where he lives now. So he makes it not going to uni, makes certain things a little bit more challenging because university gives you a direction. There's a curriculum and there's a path that you can follow. So it makes that side of things a, a bit more palatable. But when you're trying to do it on your own, the challenge becomes out of the multitude of things you could learn what should you focus on? And that's a mix of, hey, maybe I have gaps in my knowledge, but also what does the market want to make me more employable? So those things become uh, a bit more challenging. Thankfully, nowadays you have, the whole industry is kind of moving towards the micro-credentialing world. So we have things like Coursera, Udemy, even MIT and Stanford getting into that and providing these micro-credentials to learn very specific topics, which I think is the way that people who don't go to uni can get the edge there. Because university is great, but what you're going to learn in, in university, apart from those foundational layers that I mentioned, you're not really going to be using that in five years' time. The languages are going to change, frameworks are going to change. So it's all about how quickly can you learn. And I think the, the more topical courses and, and certificates and things like that, or books even, are potentially more important for in terms of the speed of learning. Mm. And I would argue that you probably couldn't learn more probably doing what you did. Obviously, you, you left 24, yeah. um, went to Spain, um, started work. And obviously, the amount of experience that you get from a commercial setting and the, the sort of scenarios that you find yourselves in, obviously, uni, yeah, great, but it's like you said, it can be quite generalist and everyone's learning the same things. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of sink or swim in your first role as well from a commercial setting. Yeah, yeah. So Spain wasn't my first role. So I was working in Brazil. That, that's where, where I started. And that first role um, gave me an in to understand more about industry. Um, I was programming this old language called Delphi at a time to develop Windows applications. And very quickly in a couple of years, I saw that, that wasn't, there wasn't a lot of future. Like if you looked at the at job offers and things like that, everyone was moving to Java at a time. And I had no idea about it. So like, I got to learn that. And, and that's what I started doing to make myself more employable and looking for a new opportunity and all that. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It's about being aware of what the market's doing as well. Yeah. And what do you see in the market at the moment and on that, on that topic? Where do you see development engineering going in the next five years? Yeah, it's an interesting one because uh, we kind of... We kind of reached a plateau, I, I would say, actually, in depending on the area of development, right? So if you talk about core engineering, back-end, front-end, we kind of coalesced into Java in the back-end for a lot of companies and JavaScript on the front-end because there is no other option, right? If you're in the browser, JavaScript is the language. You don't have a say in that. 
And some companies go the full stack way where they use both JavaScript on the front end and the back end. And it hasn't changed. It has been like that for a while, and I expect that to be like that for quite some time to come. But obviously, you have different things. So AI is a big topic right now. AI, data science, it's been picking up steam. And that uses a, a different tool set. A lot of people are using R as an environment. Python is becoming more and more popular with new libraries every day and, and environments like Jupyter. So that gives you another sense of if you want to specialize in AI and explore that world, well, we should really be learning Python. And obviously the math associated with at least the bare minimum to understand um, the basics of machine learning and things like that. But I expect that to be pretty much like that going forward. A big change that we're seeing is with the advent of ChatGPT and BARD and how those technologies, so large language models, how do they, how will they incorporate different solutions or how will they make part of different solutions in your arsenal as a software engineer? But yeah, apart from that, I, I think the basics are still pretty solid. Like you look at databases, for instance, we have more modern technologies like Dynamo, but when you talk about relational databases, that's been a, kind of the same for 50 years because it's solid and it works really well. And even SQL as a language, it's still uh, very useful to learn because that's how you query uh, large distributed databases. So people like Google and Amazon realize, hey, lots of people know SQL, so let's not make them learn a new query language if they don't have to. We just adapt the language to work over massively large data sets. Yeah, interesting. All right, now... Getting into sort of the, the meaty part of the show, in terms of supervisors, how much impact do you feel like supervisors have had in your career? Yeah, that's a good one. I would probably talk about two different uh, things here. One is, yes, supervisors, managers, your bosses. And then the other one, I think, just peers, like more senior peers. I think they can play just as big a role. So for my very first job in software engineering, I learned from my boss quite a few things not to do, things that I didn't like at the time. So to him, to give a, a bit of an example, he was all about output. You know, how soon can we get this out the door? And if you're talking to him about a different way of doing things that are potential, that is potentially more efficient or something else that you're learning, he didn't really foster an environment of learning. It was all about get this out, move on to the next thing. Very factory-like, so to speak. And I realized very early on that I didn't like that. So... As I moved on and, and ended up being in leadership positions myself, one of the things that I really push for is, hey, our team needs to be learning, needs to be evolving, needs to be doing things differently, because otherwise we're just going to be dead in the water. So that's one element. And the other one is um, probably my first mentor was, funnily enough, at, at that same job. He was a consultant who was working with us. I was 17 at the time. He would have been in his 40s, and he was so encouraging towards me. He, I would tell him about new ideas, um, even if they weren't particularly good, but they would see, he would see the, the potential and really encourage me, you should be doing more of that. I love the way you research. I love the way you're, you've been talking about these different subjects. And that really shaped the way I approached problems going forward. So I learned both the good and the bad from that role. And, and just, you know, we shouldn't downplay the influence that peers can have in your career as well, especially early on. Yeah. And that's interesting then. So that was bit of confidence that you from the consultant that you was working with mm. rather than like you said rather than shooting ideas down that may not have been the best ideas but because he's constantly gave you confidence you've just been able to evolve in, in your career absolutely absolutely and uh, it's a bit i'm not in touch with him anymore but it's um yeah it was awesome it was yeah, really nice. good nice i think what would be good now is for young sort of programmers that are looking to maybe find 
a mentor or find that sort of person that you've you've had in your in your career mm-hmm. what would you recommend that they do well look around your work in your your circle first right are there any people that you admire and if there are uh, don't be afraid to go to them and say hey i see you as a role model can you give me some tips about career or even tech what should i be learning i find that most people are very welcoming to that that certainly has been my experience so don't be afraid to ask and if you happen to be in an environment or perhaps you're just starting your career right now and you don't really have a role model yet one thing i'd recommend is you know find out the meetups that you're interested in if you're programming in python or java or javascript tons of meetups around i've met so many amazing people through meetups i used to run meetups as well and people who go to meetups they are different by definition they're there because they're keen to learn and they're keen to share and that's kind of the profile that you want so you start talking to them and who knows in the future you might even be getting job offers or even um requests from people that you meet through meetups so they're very powerful and I'm a big fan yeah interesting and I'm a big fan as well i think that's absolutely spot on in terms of the meetups is so powerful um and yeah you are sort of some people will be going out of the comfort zone by attending the meetups but once you do one you get there you enjoy it you meet even if you meet one person that person's there again and you meet a few more yeah. just a bit of a build, building block um, so I def- definitely agree there. So maybe take us back to when you was, say, a senior engineer and then you was pushing on to make that sort of transition to a leader. Now, I'm not talking, like, from a coding perspective, like not senior tech lead or even team lead. I know that's a bit more hands-off. But when you made that jump from tech lead, team lead or senior engineer to this sort of hands-off engineering position, mm. do you want to talk us through a bit about some of the challenges that you faced and what you would recommend uh, other engineers that are going through that yeah right um yeah, it's an interesting you, you should mention that so absolutely my very first team lead position which is uh where is still fairly hands-on that would have been probably when i went to atlassian but then as you mentioned i still uh was, was writing a lot of code so the first one that was a lot more hands-off was when i joined commonwealth bank actually here in australia um, to work with a mate of mine that was doing some very cool stuff there. So the biggest challenge that I would say is realizing that you're no longer measured on your ability to write code. You're measured on your ability to accomplish things through others, so through the team. And that is a, a fairly big shift in mentality because you will see things such as maybe a problem that you've seen before and you know how to solve and you're going to be super tempted at, at first instance to just jump in and, and do it. Um, but that is, isn't good for a couple of reasons. One, it's not really your job anymore. But secondly, it robs your team member, your teammates from a learning opportunity, which is it's not good for them, not good for you. So you really want to be able to, to do that. And that highlights the second challenge, which is figuring out what and how to delegate. Delegating work can be quite challenging because it's very experience dependent. And I mean experience on the person you're trying to delegate to. More junior team members, they require a lot more support, which is uh, very normal. But then as you delegate things to more senior members, you need to work on how do you work together in such a way that they don't perceive you as being micromanaging, for instance, which can happen at times. So those would be the, the biggest challenges, I think, things to, to watch out for. But that's really when you're jumping from that position of maybe you're the lead of a single team, still fairly hands-on, to then going a couple of teams or 
a fairly large team under you, which basically means you wouldn't have the time to do the coding yourself. You really have to figure out different ways of working with the team. Yeah, interesting. What do you think was the hardest thing for you in terms of stepping in to the leadership role? Because there's a few different comments that normally um, come up. It's engineers that are scared to move away from the tech, lack of management skills, lack of leadership skills, obviously. Yeah. Two different things are... Was there anything that you found particularly difficult that you had to sort of um, sharpen your skills on? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I approached it much in the same way that I approached learning about software engineering. If I, you know, back when I didn't know Java and I wanted to know Java, I bought books and then spent uh, nights in and out studying. Same thing with management. It's just something that can be taught. No one is a natural born manager. Some people are natural-born leaders. You can be a leader without being a manager, but obviously there's the management side of the job as well. And I started asking some of my mentors at the time, my boss at CBA being one of them, actually, um, hey, what should I read to find out more about how to run effective teams or you know, effective project management and things like that? And he did some recommendations. And then from reading those books, if you go to the, um, to the reference at the back of the book, then you figure out a, a number of different books they haven't read yet. So ever since I started doing that, I haven't really stopped. So every year I read about, on average, uh, 20 to 25 books. Um, a lot of them are in the leadership slash business space. It changes from time to time depending, depending on what, what I'm working on. Um, but that's how I approached it. It's um, just learning as any other uh, subject. Yeah. And not just reading the books, actually taking action. Well, yes, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of, you could do a lot of reading. But then obviously implementing that is, is key and making mistakes. And it happens. I have read books wh- which uh, f- I wasn't ready for because I, I haven't actually experienced that. So I, I read the book and I'm like, yeah, I, I kind of get it, but I, I can't do anything with it right now. As a result, I have a list that I keep, which is, you know, books to read again because I know I might need them. An example of that, for instance, uh, it's a very good book. It's called The First 90 Days. I think that's what it's called. And it's basically about transitioning into either a new company or a new job within the same company and how you should approach the, those first three months, which is really about learning about the role, the company, observing, suggesting, and then, and then really actively changing and, and making an impact. And that's a book that I've read probably two or three times now, every time that I had a big switch in, in career. That's quite interesting because you need time as well. I think if you just try and do everything overnight, you know, you can make a lot of mistakes, but the 90 days gives you a good indication of sort of where you should be. Um, it sounds like a good good read. I'll, I'll be checking that one out. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's very good. I, I quite like it. It's something that I always recommend people uh, changing job. And you don't have to be a, a leader for that one. Like it works for everyone. Yeah, yeah. And th- let's limit this to the single most important piece of advice because I know you'll have a few things bubbling around here off the back of this question. But what's the most important piece of advice that you would give to an engineer that's looking to step into that? engineering leadership role i'm not very good at following rules so i'm going to give you two um so (laughs) um the first one which i think is very important and and relevant is if you're thinking about making the switch make sure that you're making the switch in a company that is supportive of that and by that i mean at canva for instance just to use that that as an example we make it very easy for a senior engineer who's thinking of making the transition to try that for a while and if they figure out that that's not for them we make the transition back just as easy. Mm-hmm. And we have success cases on both scenarios. So making sure that you are in an environment that fosters that and supports is supportive is, is very good. Um, so that would be the, the number one advice there. And the second one 
is, which I alluded to previously, make sure you understand that your goal is no longer to uh, make an impact by yourself. It's really making an impact through your team and through the people your team can influence because your sphere of influence doesn't end with your team. Everything that your team is doing that you are potentially accountable for, that has an impact on the rest of the organization as well. So that's really your number one goal. If the thought of doing that and achieving through others and helping people grow excites you, then it's probably a, a good career path uh, for you to try out and see how that lands. So don't just jump into a leadership role for a better salary package then, because that, no, can, no, that yeah. can end in, in tears as well. Absolutely. And and back in the day, that used to be more of a, a more of an issue. Thankfully, nowadays, what companies do, Canva included, and, and many of the other ones that I've worked for, they have two different career tracks, right? So you have the, um, the individual contributor and then the manager track, and they have parallels where the salary bands are actually equivalent. So you can't actually be a senior individual contributor who has no management responsibilities and you're making as much as a director. It's entirely possible. It doesn't mean that that you spend your days coding in and out because at that level, you're expected to have an influence across the organization. It's just that it's different. It's of a lot more technical nature. But the salary, thankfully, is no longer an issue. And again, I would say the same thing. If you're working in a company where you're just looking to take that leadership position for a better pay, maybe you could look at a different company. Yeah, 100%. Now, if you had your time again, what would you do differently? <laughs> that's, a, that's one of those very good questions. Um, probably the one thing that I wish I had done is try out my, my hand in games development back when I started. Because that's how I started uh, and what really got me into the, the career path that I'm on now. But I started because I wanted to do games and I never really got to do that at a professional level. So I miss... Um, maybe having the time to do it. But yeah, here we are today. And I don't I don't really regret my choices, but if I could do something differently, maybe spend some time back when I was younger doing that. It's also a very tough environment. I speak with game developers and they work regularly work 80-hour weeks. Yeah, very yeah, tough. Yeah. Um, not but, a lot of money as well most of the time. Well, that's the thing, right? I ended up, at the time, I followed the money. I was like, who's hiring? Yeah, yeah. And, and they were not hiring and paying well for game, no. for, for game developers, at least not in Brazil. I didn't have access to the U.S. market at the time. Similar scenario in Australia. They just work so many hours, but they're doing it. It's just for the love, the passion. It's not not for the money. Absolutely. Okay, interesting. And maybe you want to give the audience a bit of a indication of sort of what you're up to now and and what you're doing now with, with your role at, at Canva, and then may, maybe talk a bit about sort of what what's next for Leo. Yeah, cool. Um, so at Canva, uh, as as you mentioned, right? So I am the director of engineering specifically for the marketing department. So just broadly, what we do in marketing, we're creating products and technology to make our marketing and user growth more efficient. So one of the probably key metrics that, that we like to talk about is our OAS, so return on ad spend. So every dollar that you spend, uh, we like to be able to account for that, but also get more from that same dollar. Um, so it's really focusing on efficiency. And when we're doing our job right, it means that company growth is going really well. Uh, we have a really key role to play in that space. So that's what we're up to in marketing at Canva. And that spans you know, various different teams, both internally and externally, including some of our external events, um, building technology to make all of that work seamlessly. Um, now, what's next for me? I've only been at Canva for 12 months. So I feel like I have a lot to achieve 
still. So what's next for me is really Canva. There's a ton that I want to do. We're hiring across all of Canva and within marketing as well. So I'm only getting started. Yeah, nice. Well, Leo, thanks very much for coming on the show, mate. It's an absolute pleasure. You shared some good insights there. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to get quite a few calls from, from multiple engineers um, over the next few weeks. So I'll uh, be passing them. Are you happy to sort of speak to engineers that reach out, that might be looking, have a few questions um, in terms of the career? Is that something that you'd, you'd be happy to do? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I really had fun. Uh, you know, forcing me to take this trip down memory lane. That was a lot of fun. Um, but absolutely, I regularly mentor different people um, through different mediums. I have a couple of mentees at the moment uh, who I work with. So definitely, I can try and answer questions. Obviously, you know, can't guarantee that I will be able to reply to everyone, but I'll, I'll do my best to try and get back. Uh, but I'm always keen to, to hear from people and, and if I can help in any way, absolutely. Perfect. Thanks for coming on the show, Leo. Cheers. No worries. Thank you, Sam. You've been listening to Decoding Careers with Sam Yates. This podcast is proudly brought to you with the support of recruitment agency, Discovered People. To find out more, go to discoveredpeople.com.au.